Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello, and welcome to the Got a Minute podcast with uh, myself, Larson Hicks, and Rich, Pastor Rich Lusk. And today we have invited a guest, uh, Pastor Paul Liberati at uh, Church of the King in Sacramento, California. Uh, he's the senior pastor there, and uh, and and uh, Paul wrote a phenomenal article on uh, baptismal efficacy um, that just just last month, in the last couple of months, it was it was uh, recently, and um, and he talks about uh, baptismal efficacy. What does baptism accomplish? And uh, it's a conversation that's very uh, relevant um, still, certainly in, in the CREC circles. Um, we're a we're a communion, a denomination that is open to um, to membership uh, uh, people joining our churches that are that hold different views of baptism, which is kind of a unique distinctive of of the CREC among among others, and and so it means that we we continue to have lots of uh, uh, hearty debates about this topic. Um, if if you are a, a follower of the uh, Fight Laugh Feast. Network and uh, th their show Cross Politic. Um, I was actually on that show last week. Um, that th they've had a kind of a, a I don't know I, I don't know how how best to describe it. Dumpster fire might be <laughs> might be <laughs> over uh, might be over dramatizing, but they've definitely had a, a a pretty big fracas over the topic of of, of baptism. Um, and so it's definitely something that lots of folks are thinking about. Um, I, I'm an elder at, at a CREC church here in Huntsville, and it's it's something. It's a conversation we have constantly. So I'm excited to have an opportunity to talk with the two of you today about uh, about this topic. And and uh, Pastor Paul, maybe you could kick us off with with maybe a summary of your article. What does baptism accomplish on your blog? Partly Presbyterian. Because uh, you kick us off with with that. Sure. Yeah, so uh, my passion in baptism goes back to when I made the transition from being uh, a credo-baptist to a pedo-baptist. And okay. um, as I made that transition, I'm sharing uh, what I'm learning with everyone I know. And the number one question that comes up inevitably is, what does baptism actually accomplish? And so, you know, I've been wrestling with that for a long time. And as I read... Um, Books on baptism, that's the question I've been focusing on. In fact, I've got this, this list of books that I still have to go through. Um, and, you know, as I've been studying, I've been, you know, noting um, the observations that I'm making. And finally, I've compiled all my notes into what I think is a milestone for me and being able to uh, write this, this, this blog post and share my findings, at least where I'm at right now. And so, so in, this, in this article... It's called, What Does Baptism Accomplish? And what I really want to do here is divide uh, the question into two parts. What does baptism accomplish sort of automatically, every time, no matter what, right? And mm -hmm. then what, is, what are the other possibilities of what baptism mm -hmm. could accomplish, um, depending upon God's sovereign will and some of the other conditions right. that might need to be met? And so that's kind of how I framed the article from sort of 30,000 feet. It's uh, basically two, two points and then some sub points. Uh, but first, I tackle it from the objective side. Uh, 
-hmm. what does baptism accomplish every time? And the idea there is that uh, baptism unites a person to Jesus Christ and begins the discipleship process. So there's an objective transfer, an initial union that takes place at baptism. Um, And then I go into the question of, well, what, what about the subjective side? Is there... Is there some sort of internal, sort of inward working grace that God communicates to us and we receive? And and I want to be able to affirm that. I want to affirm that. Um, Now, the the burden, if if you've read the article, which I know you have, um, the burden for me is that I come from uh, the Reformed tradition, right? So so in the back of my mind, the whole time is the ordo salutis, okay? And this is what I'm wrestling through. In fact, if I were to think about how many people really gave uh, pushback to my article on the Baptist side, on the reform side. It's really on the reform side that I got most of the pushback because hmm, it brings up questions about the ordo salutis. Uh, you're using words right. like uh, the washing away of sins and, and regeneration and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And you're connecting those things to baptism in a way that we're not comfortable with. Um, right. So I am, pushing, I am pushing the line a little bit. Um, but that's my burden is to be able to say the position that I'm working to articulate right. is consistent with uh, Reformed theology in in terms of right. the Ordo Salutis. So well, I, don't, I, I don't know if I've accomplished that, but that's the goal. Absolutely. Well, and I think I think one of the things I appreciated you put on your blog, I think right there, and and I don't know if this is on uh, is this is always on the page or if this was this was specifically you put this there for the purpose of this article, but you had a a quote from the Belgic Confession about about kind of the status of our confessions over against uh, the authority of of Scripture, and I do think we're what the place we're landing here, or at least you're landing is this is the place where systematic theology and biblical theology start to kind of have some tension, you know, where you've, you've, you can develop a system uh, with the order salutis and with, with the, the kind of um, structure that, that we've built up theologically that, that works. Uh, but then you have to, then you have to deal with all these passages that say some things that really are difficult to fit into that, that structure. Rich, how do you how, do? You, do you feel like that's what's going on here? Yeah, you know it's interesting. Um, you know, Paul, I I uh, I saw some of the discussions that were taking place as you were sort of, you know, you're doing what what I have done, and that is you're sort of continuing your theological education in public, <laughs> and that can always be a, a somewhat uh, scary thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to put something out there and just see what happens. And uh, what, and, and, and I noticed that you were getting, you know, lots and lots of comments and interaction on the things you put out about baptism. And uh, for me, it was kind of deja vu because for me, the first issue that I really tackled, uh, you know, in terms of my own theological development in public uh, in this kind of way was baptism. And, you know, I first, um, mm-hmm. you know, floated some some articles out on similar kinds of issues. I mean, this is, you know, 20 plus years ago now. Uh, and, and so this is a discussion that's been going on for quite a while in reform circles. I think there's been something of a renaissance of, of, uh, of renewed interest in uh, sacramental issues in the reformed church. Mm-hmm. And, and if you kind of, if you think about the big picture sort of lay of the land, um, you know, going back to what you were saying in, in the intro, Larson, about even in the series C, how there's this, you know, there's the, this 
uh, range, this breadth that we allow for on sacramental issues. Right. I think the basic watershed is uh, you have the Baptists who see baptism as symbolic, and baptism is the way you profess your faith. And then on the Reformed side, baptism is a means of grace or an instrument of salvation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism calls the sacraments effectual means of salvation. I think that's a that, that, that right. can be a very helpful way to speak. But basically, baptism is seen as God's work. So that's your basic watershed. On the Baptist side, baptism is something we do to show God we mean business. It's a way that we profess our faith between mm-hmm. God and men. On the Reformed side... Um, you certainly have some who would who would also say baptism is a symbol, but that's not the classic reform view. Uh, the classic reform view that you see in Calvin, of course, before that, Luther, the view that's that's enshrined in the Reformed confessions, is that baptism is God's act. And this, for example, is why there's no uh, hesitation to baptize infants, because infants may not be able to verbally profess faith, but they can certainly receive a gift. God can certainly act upon them and claim them as his own and adopt them. In, you know, if humans can adopt an infant into their families, why can't God adopt an infant into his family? So baptism is very much seen as God's work. And Paul, what I think you're really doing a good job addressing is taking those passages that I think very clearly cannot be um, re- cannot be watered down, to use a pun, uh, cannot be reduced or diluted to the point where they're just symbolic. They speak of something that is actually happening when God baptizes. And of course, God baptizes through through, through, through a human, through a pastor, through his church. But God is acting in baptism to forgive sins, to unite to Jesus, to bring us into the regeneration. Uh, again and again, this very strong language is used for what happens in baptism. And I think that's really, really crucial. You have spoken in mm-hmm. terms of an objective and subjective distinction, and I think that's very helpful. And I'll I I like come back yeah. to that in a minute. The, the model that I have tended to use is that of Gift and response. So in baptism, mm-hmm. God gives a gift, and then, of course, that calls forth a response from us. You, you said there are certain aspects of baptism that happen regardless of the human response, and I think that's true. There are other aspects of the gift that have to be received by faith if, that, if the meaning of baptism, the purpose of baptism, is to come to full fruition. Uh, because there's another side to this. We can talk about the baptismal efficacy in a salvific way. But what about for those who are baptized and then reject what their baptism is all about? They're united to Christ, but they don't bear any fruit. Uh, John 15, Jesus talks about branches on the vine that have to be cut off because they're fruitless. So it's it's possible to be united to Christ in some sense. And let's say baptism is is the source of that or the means of that and not bear fruit. And then I would say baptism is still efficacious, but it's efficacious to uh, to increase your judgment because you're responsible for this means of grace, but you've rejected uh, what was offered to you. So I've used that gift response model, which I think fits very well with, with Calvin's language as a way of capturing baptism is always God's gift. It always is what it is, and nothing man does or doesn't do in response to baptism changes its objective meaning to get to, to, to the language you're using. Baptism is what it is. But baptism is a gift that has to be received by faith in order for baptism to come to its full um, salvific fruit in our lives. It has to be received with a persevering faith. And, of course, you see some who perhaps respond with some kind of faith for a while, but it doesn't take root and eventually withers. And so they break the covenant that they entered into in baptism. Others perhaps don't believe at all. Uh, and and so they never it, 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 it never... Um, it, it never comes to fruition in their lives. But it do, that does not 
uh, keep baptism from being what it is. Calvin talked about how uh, the rain can fall on the on the soft ground, or the rain can fall on the rock. The rain is is what it is. That doesn't that doesn't change the the, the nature of the rain. The rain is a gift. It's a blessing. Uh, it's 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 there to produce fruitfulness. But if the condition of the earth is such that it's rocky ground and nothing can grow there, uh, then the, the you know the rain just sort of bounces off of it. And so th- there, there's a way of, of preserving conditionality uh, in what mm-hmm. God does in baptism. Paul, I'd be interested to get your thoughts since you you've been your participation in these discussions is really much more current than mine. What are your thoughts on that? Do you see baptism as being conditional in both directions, that there can be a kind of negative efficacy where baptism intensifies judgment for those who don't receive it uh, faithfully? Uh, how would you handle that, that kind of question with, with the model that you've given in your paper? Yeah, so, so absolutely, I think. Uh, well, first of all, let me say that, that the distinction you're making, instead of objective, subjective categories, uh, which could be a little bit abstract for some people, uh, your categories mm-hmm. are very helpful. Uh, I appreciate those categories, the giving and the receiving. So there's two sides right. uh, to the transaction that takes place between God and his people. God offers, gives, and then we receive by faith. And if you notice, I, I did try to represent that because once we get into the subjective side in the article, uh, I'm using the term believer uh, for the person who's being baptized. The believer can receive, you see. So, so I do want to mm. reflect that. Maybe I should make that more of an emphasis. Maybe I can even take some time right. to articulate that explicitly. Um, maybe that'd be helpful for some people. Uh, when it comes to uh, the two sides of blessing and cursing in terms of uh, the outcome of covenant faithfulness, receiving God's promises by faith, and covenant unfaithfulness, rejecting uh, the gift of baptism, all that all that's included in that. I agree 100%. Uh, I think it just really goes back to the, the principle of Scripture, to whom much is given, uh, mm. much is required. To whom much more is given, much more is required. And so I think that principle is sound, and I think it's something that actually... Um, our ministers, even even in, in the preaching ministry, uh, in the churches, mm-hmm. should emphasize a little bit more. I, I think uh, I'm exposed a lot more to the blessings and the privileges of the covenant. But you know, on the other side, there's a reality that we have to uh, we have to reinforce in the minds of our people. We have to remind them that right. if they uh, take what God is giving them or what He has given them in baptism. And they disregard it, or they neglect it, or they altogether reject it, uh, then the consequences for that are much more serious, much more severe than if they had not known the truth, as Peter says, or if, if they had never been baptized. And, and here, a couple of passages come to mind, like um, Hebrews chapter 10. Right. I where, started, you know, yeah. Right. So often we just think, well, the Old Testament was strict and rigid. And boy, if you messed up, it was, it, you know, certain death under two or three witnesses, as, as Moses says. But actually, the comparison there is is really of a, from a lesser to a greater a sort of comparison in the new covenant. When we're talking about uh, trampling underfoot uh, the son of God and counting the blood of the covenant, wherewith we, we, we've been sanctified as an unholy thing and then doing despite unto the spirit of grace that really magnifies the situation and it intensifies the the outcome 
Yeah, that's so, really good. So, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, go for it. Well, so one thing that I then I want to add here, based on what I said, and 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 to clarify that, and it, I think it follows what you just said in saying that baptism can result in intensified judgment. We're not saying that baptism is neutral, as if you get baptized it can go either way. God's intention, His covenantal right. intention, I'll qualify it that right. way. His covenantal intention in baptism is always to save, it's to bless, it's to forgive, right. it, it's to unite to Christ. Uh, whether or not those um, whether or not God's covenantal intention comes to fruition um, right. is on our response. And that, and this, so this is operating at the level of covenant and human responsibility. We can get into the relationship of this to divine sovereignty in a few minutes. That'd be an interesting thing to talk about as well. Uh, but, um, it, you know, when it comes, it's just like when we preach the gospel, our, our intent when we preach the gospel to unbelievers is that they would repent and be saved. That they would come Amen. to come to faith, that they would believe the message, and that they would be saved. Is that always what happens? No. Sometimes people reject the message and only intensify their judgment. And there's a, there's a sense in which you can say something similar about baptism. God's intention in baptism and baptizing. You can say I think the church's intention in baptizing is always to bless, uh, to bring to, to bring salvation. Uh, it does not always turn out that way because sometimes people uh, reject the covenant or they, they they break the covenant into which they've been baptized. Okay, so that, that that's one thing I wanted to make clear. But I want to make a statement here, and then and then and then you guys can tell me what you think about it, uh, because when you talk about baptismal efficacy, um, and particularly if you link it to regeneration, one thing people will say is, "Oh, baptismal regeneration." You are saying that every single person who is baptized is automatically saved forever. Okay. And I would say, no, that's not what baptismal regeneration language means. And and, and and speaking about baptismal regeneration, I'm thinking of a passage like Titus 3.5. I mean, the language of regeneration, which you point out in your, your paper, Paul, is only used two times in the, in the New Testament. Matthew 19.28 to describe the renewal of all things where his apostles will be sitting on thrones as judges. It's basically the new creation. I actually think it's being used the same way in Titus chapter 3 to describe this object of reality of the new creation that we enter into in baptism. Um, but, but whatever, you know, we, that, that may be another um, point to discuss. But whatever, whatever the precise nature of its meaning, when theologians as diverse as, say, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther and, yes, John Calvin have used the language of baptismal regeneration, none of those theologians intend to say that being baptized guarantees your eternal salvation no matter what. Uh, so Calvin uses the language of baptismal regeneration, and of course he's got a different definition of regeneration. For him, regeneration means a kind of ongoing renewal through the whole course of our lives. Um, that take that that has its inception of baptism and then is to continue throughout the whole course of our lives. So the efficacy of baptism, what begins in baptism, is to extend. But uh, so th this this would be the, the 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 statement I'd like to make. You know, nobody believes that baptism automatically guarantees salvation. At least no theologian that I know of in the history of the church has taught that. So when people say, "Oh, well, if you you know, baptism regeneration," that's what that means. I would say no. Luther used that language. That's not what he meant. Calvin used that language. That's not what he meant. Roman Catholics use that language. Anglicans use that language. That's not what any of them mean either. So that's definitely a straw man. Uh, and I've written a pretty right. lengthy paper called Do I Believe in Baptism Regeneration that makes that point. A lot of times Reformed people, because of their very specific meaning of regeneration, they say, oh, well, if you attach baptism to the way we use this word, then you're, you know, then like you talked about the Ordo Salutis 
fall. It's like every other domino in that chain falls, and so you're saying every baptized person is eternally saved. But no, that's not that's not what it means. There's an element of conditionality in baptism that we've talked about. Uh, regeneration can have other meanings. So baptismal regeneration does does not does not mean that. But I want to make a statement here, and I'd like to get you guys to comment on it because it's one that I've used. I want to know if you think it's pastorally helpful. And I would, I would use, I would point to. Uh, well, let me go ahead and make the statement, and then I'll, I'll explain why I make it this way. Nothing objective guarantees subjective faithfulness. Nothing objectively given guarantees final salvation. So think about this. This would be true of, say, circumcision. Circumcision objectively made the one circumcised a member of Israel, uh, a member of Abraham's family. And in that sense, it was a blessing. You're part of the people of God. But circumcision doesn't guarantee final salvation. And, and that's why you see uh, you know, calls for the people to circumcise their hearts. You know, It's not enough to have your body circumcised. You've got to have a change of heart. Um, here's another illustration of the same kind of thing. Uh, in the book, of, I think the book of Jeremiah is largely about this. The people think because they have objective possession of the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices, because the Shekinah glory objectively dwells in their midst, that therefore they are safe and they are immune to judgment. These objective blessings they have uh, will protect them against any kind of judgment. And it's very clear from Jeremiah's message. You know, you cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You say, to the temple, to the temple, when... What you're doing at the temple is the very thing that's going to bring about your judgment. Objective right. possession of these blessings does not guarantee salvation, does not guarantee immunity to judgment. I think you see that the same thing happen in the New Testament, where the way Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. The Pharisees think they're fine because they're children of Abraham. And it's as if Jesus says to you, objectively speaking, yes, you're right, you're children of, of Abraham. But in reality, you are sons of Satan. You're children of the devil. Uh, and that's because you right. do the things of the devil. Uh, and so, again, these objective gifts that have been given do not guarantee subjective faithfulness. These objective gifts do not guarantee final salvation. So that's why I put it. Galatians, I think you could say, is, is largely about this. What do you guys think about that way of putting it? Nothing objective guarantees subjective faithfulness. Well, I think you can go further with that, Rich. I mean, I, I, you brought up Jeremiah, you know, and Jeremiah... 18 where he's talking about the potter and the clay you know where he has jeremiah go down to the potter's house um and he 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 says it says then the word of the lord came to me O house of israel can i do with you as this potter has done declares the lord behold like the clay in the potter's hand so you are my hand O house of israel if at any time i declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that i will pluck up and break down and destroy it and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent from the disaster that I intended to do to it. Uh, and then he says the same thing, you know, in the I'm other way around. Memorize Larson. That's very impressive. Oh no, 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 I had it pulled up. Of I course, know. I know, right? Yeah, I've got it memorized. <laughs> no, it's funny because I pulled it up before you before you brought up Jeremiah. I mean, I I I uh, I, I I was thinking about this passage this morning, um, and and it's it's uh, it's it's the same kind of thing. He, you know, he says that if he declares, uh, if I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight and not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Um, so, you know, uh, God, you know, God can declare something, you know, and, and can speak. And so, and so I think that's what, what both of you are saying about baptism in baptism, God is declaring something, 
Um, it is his action, but there is a covenant faithfulness component. And, and I think the parody or the straw man of Calvinism that I hear most, you know, I have family who are Catholic, uh, and, 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 and I've many Arminian friends and people from that side of things. They look at the, the straw man of Calvinism as well. You guys think that, you know, if you're elect, you know, baptized, anything, you can't do anything at all to, to lose your salvation. Um, uh, and, and you have to look at passages like this and go, well, you're right. There, there, there is that, that wouldn't be true if I held to that position, obviously, uh, who is elect and how do we discern who is elect? I mean, that's a whole other can of worms. It's important though, um, to this whole discussion. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just add to that. I, I think, um, I think what you said is um, is is good. It's solid. It, it, it's an absolute statement because you said you know nothing objective guarantees uh, the proper uh, subjective response, or if you will. So you, so I have to I have to run that through all the different scenarios. But the couple of examples that you guys have given, I think, are are sound. Um, I thought of Hebrews chapter twelve with Esau, and in my mm-hmm. mind, it would correspond to something like First Corinthians seven fourteen, where you know, in, in Hebrews 12, um, whoever the writer to the Hebrews is, uh, is saying, um, you know, don't let any man fail of the grace of God. Don't let any root of bitterness springing up, uh, spring up in your hearts and trouble you. Right. And he says, mm-hmm. lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. He's talking about uh, the people of God becoming defiled. Once you start getting into this language of um, uh, being a profane person, how Esau, because he sold his birthright, became a profane person. Now we're moving into uh, ceremonial categories, if you will, because you can't profane something that was not initially holy. Right. That's why I bring up First Corinthians 714, Hmm. uh, where where the child of one believing parent is holy. So, so you have right. this objective standing, this objective holiness, um, signified, sealed, right, in circumcision in the Old Testament, so that the people yeah. of God are objectively holy people. And yet at the same time, the warning is, uh, don't become like an Esau, because then you will profane the covenant, you will become a profane person. What, what I mm-hmm. find so interesting, though, is that this book, uh, written to the Hebrews, is written to New Covenant Christians, and so mm-hmm. it, it, it used to baffle me as a Baptist to think, what are all of these warnings uh, against apostasy doing uh, right. in a book that's written to New Covenant members? I mean, wasn't that just a feature of the Old Covenant that, that someone can have an objective spiritual standing with God and then lose it? In the New Covenant, I thought that these things were absolutely secure, so that if you were part of the people of God, and you were a member of the new covenant, you could never fall away. Um, so, but passages like this are telling us, no, the structure of our covenant relationship with God uh, has similarities to that which we find in the Old Testament. So, so I, think, I think you're right. There's, we have to get down this objective standing, these objective blessings, mm-hmm. even, even an objective possession of the blessings, and not confuse that with, a proper subjective response, which exactly. secures those blessings to us. Right. I think. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. right. 
and and I think I think you're you're very wise there to make that connection that the old the the, the basic structure of the covenant obviously blessings have been intensified you could say curses have been intensified too in the new covenant there are uh, there is a transformation that's taken place from old covenant to new covenant but the structure of the covenant and the fact that the covenant has conditions and the fact that there is such a thing as a covenant breaker an apostate. That has not changed mm-hmm. from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Those things are still realities. And so where we might be tempted, right. especially if we're thinking like Baptist, we're, we might be tempted to uh, draw contrast from Old Covenant to New Covenant. The New Testament is actually drawing parallels. I think it's Doug Wilson who put it that way. It's a very helpful way of, of, of recognizing yeah. in Hebrews and 1 Corinthians 10 and so many other places, you have these warnings about apostasy, these warnings about falling away that sound just like what Old Testament prophets do. And in fact, very often, Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel and Old Covenant Israel is falling away and covenant breaking is really used as the model of what not to do. It's used as a warning. Israel is used as a warning mm-hmm. again and again. Well, why use Israel as a warning if apostasy is no longer a possibility in the New Covenant? Well, apostasy does remain a, a, a possibility. So, so this, uh, you know, Rob Rayburn talks about how we have to preach the extremes. And so I think when we were talking about baptism and we come across a passage like Acts 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children, as many as the Lord our God will call. Or Romans 6 that connects baptism with union with Christ. You've been baptized into Christ's death, burial, resurrection, all that. His death to sin, his resurrection to new life. Or Titus 3, baptism is called the lava of regeneration, the washing of regeneration. When we come to passages like that, we need to preach the gospel as a baptismal gospel. Baptism is the gospel in watery form. Baptism Baptism is salvation in watery form, uh, and, and we've got to preach that. Uh, we, we, we should not qualify those passages. We should not make those passages die the death of a thousand qualifications, uh, which is what so many, right. you know, that happens so often in the Reformed Church today. Much more time is spent explaining those passages away than explaining what they actually mean, and more time is spent explaining what baptism does not do than what it does. Okay, tell me what the passage means. Those words mean something. Tell me what they mean. Obviously, baptism right. is a powerful gift that God intends for our salvation. We have to preach that to the hill. I think we also have to preach the warnings uh, because the warnings are also there in Scripture. They also have to be warned. And don't think just because you're baptized that nothing bad can ever happen to you if you if you just decide to live however you want. Because you're baptized, you have to live as one who is married to Christ. You're, you're part of Christ's spouse. Live like it. You're baptized. You're dead to sin. Live like it. You're baptized. You're part of the holy covenant people of God. Live like it. Live out what you've been given. Be who you are. So what's happened objectively, the gift that's been given, that's the foundation. But then we actually have to build upon it. And I think it's really important, whether it's a pastor with his congregation or a Christian parent with his baptized children, uh, that we keep that Mm -hmm. structure in view. Uh, Baptism helps us to understand the structure of the covenant. Baptism is, you could say, the foundation, but we have to build upon it. That's good. Well, will you just, in the spirit of of of, um, of doing what you just said, Rich, in in rather than you know qualifying uh, those passages to death or or um, explaining them away, pa- Paul used the term you know salvific blessing or or um, saving benefits, you know, uh, as as um, as something that that baptism 
sovereignly, you know, communicates salvific blessings or, or saving benefits, what, how, how would you, if you were to, if you were to, tr- um, kind of, um, flesh those out or explain, c- could, could you explain those or, or try to, um, flesh that out a little further? What, what is a salvific blessing? What is a saving benefit, um, of baptism? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Paul started out and, and Paul does a really good job talking about that very thing in his paper. Um, I would say the most, the, the, the most fundamental way to understand baptism, Paul actually uses this illustration in, in his, in his paper. And it's one that I've used a lot as well. I think it's very helpful. Think of baptism as a marriage. Uh, in baptism, the one baptized is joined to the bride of Christ, which means Christ mm-hmm. is now your husband. I mean, we don't want to individualize that imagery. Uh, there's problems that come with that. But you become a part of the bride of Christ, which means Christ is your husband. You're part of the people who have Christ as husband. Uh, and so you know, we could say that when a couple is married... They receive all the blessings and benefits that come with the married state. There's an objective change that takes place, to use that, that language that we've, we've, we've used again and again. But a married couple has to live out what they've been given. There are certain duties that follow from those privileges. They've made these promises to one another. They have to keep those promises now in a, in a, you know, on a daily basis, in a day-to-day kind of way. And we can mm-hmm. say the same about the person who has been baptized. You have been blessed. You are united to Christ, period. You're in union with Christ. Now what? Well, live as somebody who has been united to Christ. Be faithful to your husband. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be loyal to him in all of life. Submit to his lordship and his leadership uh, in all of life. He is your head. Uh, you are to submit yourself to him. And, and so all these all these benefits, all these blessings come with baptism, but then there, 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 there are duties and responsibilities that come with it as well. And so that may be another another helpful way to think about it. I think it's really helpful for the baptismal efficacy question because nobody goes to a wedding and wonders whether or not something has happened. Okay, Everybody who goes right. to a wedding knows these two people just got married. I may have my doubts whether yeah. or not they're going to stay together, sadly, uh, but there's no question that they woke up today as two single people and now they're husband and wife, and they've got a whole batch of new relationships, new identity, new, you know, in her case, a new name. New, new titles, new offices, all of that. Uh, all of that's changed. But at the same time, uh, we've got to stress there are certain obligations that come with this new status that you have, this new identity that you have. So it's just holding all of that together. And, uh, and, and that can be hard to do pastorally or parentally, but I think that, that's what we've got to do is hold all those things together. Paul, what do you think about that? Well, what you just said reminded me of something that uh... – Ray Sutton said in his book, here, I'm, I'm going through this one, too. So yeah, that's a good one. Uh, signed, sealed, and delivered, study of holy baptism. And he does spend a little bit of time on this marriage analogy. And he basically says when two people come together and they're married, uh, love can be present. But it's also possible that love is not present. And then from there, there's yeah. a couple more options. Either the love can develop right? Or tragically, the love may never develop. And so there's that objective reality of the marriage. And then there's that subjective living out the marriage as God intended it to be lived out. So I think, I think that's perfect. And I think what you're saying is, is completely in line with what Paul is saying in Romans chapter six, reckon yourselves to be dead uh, to sin and alive uh, with Christ unto God. Uh, don't don't use your members any longer as members 
as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead use them for righteousness sake. Live out everything your baptism was meant to uh, lead you into uh, in terms of the Christian mm-hmm. life. So, yeah, I think that's I think that's perfect. And um, and, and I use I use the marriage analogy a lot with uh, people when I yeah. when I begin to explain to them, look, uh, baptism is a, a God ordained ritual act. OK, so that right. so that this is one of those aspects of baptism that happens every single time. It unites right. us to the right. body of Christ, to the bride of Christ, did right. you say? And that happens n- no matter what. But it's, it's interesting when people uh, hear the marriage analogy, immediately what they think I'm saying is marriage is now a third sacrament, you know, akin yeah, to not- Roman Catholicism. <laughs> and I always have to clarify that for people and say, no, no, I'm not saying marriage is a sacrament, but I believe that the analogy is perfect for the sacrament yeah, of baptism. Yeah. So I use it a lot. Which, 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 which is interesting because God does use the marriage relationship to explain his relationship with his people. And actually, I'd say that God's relationship with his people is the original archetype. Our marriages are the ectype, the, 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 the echo of that, the symbol of that. So, uh, so yes, it, it's actually, you know, it is the other way around. And of course, marriage is not a sacrament because not all Christians get married, and many people who are not Christians do get married, and so it doesn't, it can't function in that way. But it is symbolic. It is, it is symbolic of covenantal realities in terms of our relationship with God. Absolutely. Well, God also uses the, the, the metaphor of adoption, and, and there's probably a lot to talk about there, too, is the idea that you, you are just like a real, a real adoption. There really are a lot of benefits uh, that come along with being adopted, right? I mean, they're, they're, you get table fellowship you know, with a family that are your people, uh, and, and the opportunity to be raised in a loving home you know, with, with uh, parents who, who discipline you and instruct you like that. Those are real blessings. Uh, whether or not you, um, take hold of those or decide to, to be a rebellious son and and reject those blessings is still to be seen, but, but it is a great, tremendous blessing, uh, to, to be adopted. That's right. That's right. And, And of course the intention of the parents in adopting a child is to bless that child and to leave that child in inheritance, but inheritances can be forfeited, you know? So again, you've got all those same dynamics at work. Paul, I want to go back to something that you said early on uh, in your, your your opening comments that I thought was, you know, it's intriguing and it's something that I think there ought to be further exploration of it just to, to help people understand. I know we're kind of winding this conversation down, but you talked about how when you talk about baptismal efficacy, reformed people would raise questions about the order of salutis, the order of salvation, which, you know, in the, mm-hmm. the reformed world, that's all about God's sovereignty and salvation you know, starting with, let's say, regeneration or the effectual call, which basically, you know, initiates this whole, I mean, you could even trace it back further, of course, to election, you know, in eternity past, but just the the things that God does in our lives in in history, beginning with regeneration that gives birth to faith and repentance so that by faith we're justified and, uh, and of course, we repent of our sin and the process of sanctification begins from there. And then we persevere to the end and we're finally glorified. So that's kind of a simplified version of it. But the order of salutis, the different steps along the way in terms of our experience of salvation. When, when people raise that issue for you, how did you respond to that? And how do you see baptism and, and for that matter, the Lord's Supper, all of the external means of grace, we could say, fitting into the order of salutis? Yeah, so so there's a couple different ways I could answer that, um, but the way that that is reflected in my in my blog post is probably the best way. 
I was having a discussion with a friend of mine, and because we're so much uh, thinking of the Ordo Salutis, his main question was, if you're saying God communicates salvific blessings uh, in and through baptism, uh, then, then what about the person who has already received those salvific blessings? And I said, like what? And he says, what if he's already been regenerated? Right now, regeneration mm-hmm. according to uh, you know, Westminster language, uh, that's that conversion, that inward uh, renovation of the heart. Um, and w- what if he's already received the forgiveness of sins? What if he's already received the Holy Spirit? And I wrestled with that a lot, and I thought, okay, so here I'm saying that, that in baptism, because that's what the Scriptures teach, the Scriptures are explicit about being baptized for the forgiveness of sins and receiving the Holy Spirit, and I don't want to undermine the Scriptures. But I recognize the tension that he was introducing uh, because of a particular view of the Ordo Salutis. And so as I started to search out uh, these salvific blessings, these redemptive benefits, um, I started to sort of catalog the different uh, appearances of the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of sins, asking for forgiveness, receiving forgiveness, um, along with receiving the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit, um, you know, multiple times. And I started to realize that, that the best answer I could give right now is that these are not one-time salvific blessings that a person receives and then never receives again. Uh, so just talking about the forgiveness of sins, I don't have a problem with saying that if a person hears the preaching of the gospel, it calls him to repentance, he puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he receives the forgiveness of his sins. I mean, that's, that's the gospel. It's beautiful. The question is... Right. What else can he receive in baptism related to the forgiveness of sins? And I realized that's a false problem. It's a false dilemma. Because in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is commanding his disciples to pray daily for the forgiveness of sins. And, uh, you know, in, in the book of 1 John, John also speaks in the present tense when he says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So putting two and two together, what I realized was, look, every time I sin, I have to confess my sins and receive the forgiveness of God and be washed once again uh, from the filth of my sins. Um, So so I realized that's not really a problem. And I begin to sort of uh, try to develop that in the article where I say, if a person receives forgiveness from God, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, it's it's uh, it's no violation of biblical theology for us to say right. that later on, when he is is baptized into Christ, that he receives uh, the washing away of his sins. Uh, mm-hmm. So so yeah, I, I um I will say you know it, it you know trying to keep the ordo salutis in mind is challenging. Because sometimes we assume things about the Ordo Salutis that might not be biblically accurate. I think there's a difference between, you know, when you go back to the older theologians and you pay very careful attention to the distinctions that they're making. And then when you just put your ear to the to the street of the church and you hear the popular theology that's going around, I think there's a, mm-hmm. there's a big difference in terms of the quality. And so I want to get back into the old writers to be able to see some of those those finer distinctions and mm-hmm. be able to uh, sort of flesh those out in, in my writings, because I think that's where the Bible leads us. I think yeah. I think 
the salvation that Jesus Christ gives us is a salvation that is on a continuum. Right. So so there are initial blessings that he gives us, but there is a renewal of those blessings. There is a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. There's fresh washing of our sins. Um, And then just the term regeneration is also very interesting uh, because, again, Mm -hmm. we might be using the term in two different ways. Are we referring to Mm -hmm. that permanent change of nature or are we we Mm -hmm. referring to, in Calvin's sense, uh, the initial state of grace that continues through a lifelong process of progressive sanctification. So, right. so yeah, I'm just trying to, th- these are thorny issues, and it's, it's all naughty, and I'm trying to untangle it for, for my reader. Right. But, yeah. but again, um, well, Pat, you know, you'd have to be the judge as to whether I'm successful with that, because yeah, there's no, that, a lot that, more that's to be good. Um, You know, I, 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 the Order of Salutis, obviously, you know, if, if, if as far as it goes, is fine. But the problem is, I think the way that, it, that we think about the Order of Salutis, the way it's presented in certain theology textbooks, basically, I think is, is somewhat mm-hmm. problematic in that it, 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 it veers in a Gnostic direction. You're talking about the salvation of an individual. Uh, and right. so you can easily get the impression that this has nothing to do with the church or nothing to do with the outward means of grace. When, if you look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, it's very clear that the, which, which is interesting because in the Confession, you, you know, if you're just reading through those chapters that have to do with the different steps in the Order of Salutis, you could get the impression that there's, that, you know, that this has very little to do with the church or the outward means of grace. But when you get to the catechism or when you get to the chapter on the church or, or the, the sections on the sacraments, you, you see this more. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know, ask the question, what is required of us to escape God's wrath and curse? You know, it's faith, repentance, and diligent use of the outward means of grace, which means the church. It means life in the church, because that's where the means of grace are found. So so I, we need to really make sure that we guard against any kind of Gnostic um, version of the order yeah. of salutis, which is where I think that, that tends towards a salvation that has nothing to do with the church, uh, which, is, which is problematic. Right. So we somehow need to integrate in baptism and the Lord's Supper and preaching and life in the church into our order of salutis to make it more complete. Basically, life in the covenant community. So the order of salutis has this context of of the church and the means of grace. Um, it's interesting too. I, this is a question that I wrestled with. I, I've actually done some writing on this. Again, this is this is many years ago, but I, I did a paper called "Some Thoughts on the Means of Grace," which really I put out as you know, I talked about continuing my theological education in public. This was really sort of what that was because I thought of this paper as uh, containing proposals, not not you know, final definitive positions necessarily. But it's interesting, uh, and you kind of raised this in your paper too, basically saying that the same blessings can be received more than once and in more than one way. So, for example, Calvin says, I forget exactly how he puts it, and I was going to try to find the, the quote, but basically Calvin says, and this is in his response to the Lutheran Westfall, and a lot of Luther, a lot of Calvin's strongest uh, language about the sacraments comes when he is dealing with Lutheran critics, but he says, men are regenerated in baptism just as they are by the word. So it's as if he says this same blessing of regeneration, the same um, gift of new life in Christ and in his church is given to us through the word, and it's given to us in baptism. And, of course, then you can talk about how that new life is sustained and nourished by the ongoing ministry of the word and by the Lord's Supper. Um, but uh, I, I always found that interesting that he says the same blessing is basically given in these two different ways. We regenerated in baptism in the same way or, or just as we are uh, through the word. There were some Mercersburg theologians, if you're familiar with the Mercersburg movement, um, John Williamson Nevin, Philip Schaff, 
uh, Krebs, uh, Gearhart, Manuel Gearhart, a uh, number of theologians who, who were reformed, had a high sacramental theology, high ecclesiology, high view of the liturgy, all of that. And they had a little bit different way of dealing with it. I, I think it's Krebs, and this is kind of what I was basing my paper off of, the, the Some Thoughts on the Means of Grace paper. He wanted to really stress that there is a, a unique grace given, a unique gift given in each one of the means of grace. And so he takes Acts 2 and says, you know, Peter has preached the gospel. And so, you know, what happens when Peter preaches the gospel, the people cry out and say, what must we do to be saved? So he says, the word has now done its work. The word's work here is to convict of sin and then to make people desire what God will give to them in the sacrament of baptism. And so they, you know, the word has done its work. It's convicted them. They cry out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, well, repent and be baptized. And, and that will give right. you what you now desire because of the word doing its work on you. You'll get that in baptism. So baptism completes the work of the word. Baptism does something, uh, you know, that, um, that, that well, the word points to, but that the word itself does not provide. Now, the problem with that, I think, is that, and this goes back to what Calvin says. The problem with that is that you've got passages like, say, James 1, where uh, the apostle says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his new creation. So they were brought forth by the word of truth into this new birth. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. So there's the word, again, that, that, that is the instrument or cause or however you want to describe it of, of this new birth. So it seems like there, you know, there are passages that speak in multiple ways in Scripture, and so somehow we have to synthesize that and tie that all together. But it's not surprising when there's so much diversity in the Bible. Obviously, there's, there's not contradictions, but these are, these are different ways of describing the same reality. There's no contradiction there. But given that the Bible speaks in such, such diverse ways about how God applies his salvation to us and brings about his salvation using the word and baptism and, of course, even the right. Lord's Supper as well, it's not surprising that theologians don't completely agree amongst themselves on the best formulation. You, you know, just just let me say one thing here. I have an illustration, and maybe I'll run it by you, and, and uh, you guys can tell yeah, me if go it's ahead. any good. But as I was explaining these things to my wife, I share with her everything I learned. She says, well, I thought that uh, you get grace this way, let's say through the word. Now you're saying you get the grace through baptism. Um, and, and the illustration is, well, let's say you went to the doctor and you found out that you were deficient in vitamin D. Okay. And you know that you need to increase your, your take. Now, I don't want to turn grace into a substance. It's just exactly. an analogy. Yes, yes. Um, uh, but, but I said, you know, you could... Um, you could do a lot of different things to make sure that you secure vitamin D for yourself. You can get more sun, right? A, a step out into the sunlight because that's a wonderful source or means of vitamin D. Or you could drink more milk, all right? Or, or you could take supplements or whatever. All of these different uh, sources or means are providing you essentially the same thing in, in the end. And yeah. the sure. illustration goes, well, we need the word. And we constantly need the word. But we also need... Uh, the other means of grace, uh, we need we need baptism right. and we need the Lord's Supper. Right. So so mm -hmm. that's been and then just talking about instruments and means of grace and how God uses physical means to communicate spiritual blessings is a fascinating topic, because as I go back mm -hmm. through the scriptures, I'm looking at the miracles of Jesus 
And I'm asking myself, okay, we all know that if Jesus wanted to, he could say the word and the person would be healed, right? Sometimes he does that. It's by an act of his sovereign will alone uh, that anyone receives anything from him, right? But on certain occasions, Jesus is pleased to employ certain means or instruments in the process of delivering his grace or his healing, Uh, you know, mud on the eyes, Um, go wash in the pool of Siloam, right? Mm -hmm. Or you think about Naaman the leper going in, you know, dipping himself seven times into into the water, right? These are means yep. that God is pleased to employ, but in no way are we trying to say that God is either bound to use these means or that he somehow right. has his hands tied if the means right. are not available. Right. And, uh, and that's another point of clarification we need to, to make for people who are struggling or wrestling through some of the propositions we're giving them. Yeah, in terms that, of that's really, really good. It's, it's, it's like the same gift being given in multiple ways. So I, I really like your illustration, actually, of the doctor. I do agree that, that you, do, you want to avoid the whole idea of grace as a substance. Grace is relational, yeah, right. not substantial. So, so any medicine illustration, it, you know, is, you're going to have to guard against that, that particular problem. Right. But I like the idea of you can get vitamin D in multiple ways. An illustration I've used that is somewhat similar to this, and this also I think ties in with what you're saying about Jesus in the gospel, sometimes speaking a word, sometimes using other physical instruments to bring about his, his healing, his salvation, uh, is you know, we as husbands communicate love to our wives in a variety of ways. It's the same love being communicated, but we, we, uh, we use different means, we employ different means to give the gift of our love to our wives. So, for example, we verbally tell our wives that. That's certainly crucial, and God does that. God speaks to us powerfully through his word. Uh, but we also give gifts to our wives, and we do things for our wives. And, and, and so that's word and sacrament. You know, it's, it's, God has a word and deed ministry amongst his people. God speaks words of love to us, and God also does deeds of love among us. And foundationally, among those deeds of love, our baptism, and the Lord's Supper. This is how God communicates his love to us. So it's relational, but, but a relationship, a, a, a full relationship, a complete relationship needs more than just words. It needs action. It needs, it needs right. to appeal to the, you know, to the full range of senses, for example. Well, in giving us the sacraments, God's appealing to our whole person, the whole of who we are, to communicate his love to us in very tangible ways. So you have the word, and you believe, you know, you hear the word, you cling to the word, you believe the word, and, and that, 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 that forms you in a certain way. But then you've also got baptism. This is divine love made food, is how the church fathers put it. Uh, the, the Lord's mm-hmm. Supper is divine love made food. I would say baptism is divine love in water, you know, in, in watery form. Uh, so, and in all these different ways, in the Word, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, we've got the Word of God. We've got the love of God being given to us in different ways. So you've got the love of God being given to us in audible ways, in tangible, in a tangible watery way, and even in an edible way. Uh, so that we experience the love of God in a multitude of ways, just like we want our wives to experience our love in a multitude of ways. I, I, to me, it seems like pastorally the the issues surrounding this discussion or debate. I, I think just again pastorally, it it, it looks like uh, questions about assurance. You know, how do I know uh, that God loves me? How do I know that I'm saved? And there's and and I think baptism and the and the table. Um, and if you go back, you know, Old Testament, you look at manna and you look at um, you know, bringing Israel through the waters of, of, of the Red Sea or, or 
or many other examples you could give. It, it's this anti-Gnostic, you know, incarnational um, um, pattern of of gods to to not leave us to depend upon uh, the the propositional truth of Scripture or, or of His promises, but actually to show us and give us assurance. So it's it's it, the 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 gifts. Uh, baptism and and the Lord's table, uh, the sacraments are 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 there to drive us back to uh, the source, you know, to to put our faith and our trust. So, so your your bat your your salvation doesn't depend on whether or not you were baptized, but you can look to it as a sign and as a as an encouragement to look put put your faith in the God who has put His mark on you, uh, put your faith in the God who is feeding you. Um, and, uh, and, and I think we want to try to reduce it down. Our temptation is to reduce it down to a, a Gnostic, you know, um, um, formula that we can just say, well, well can, can we just put our faith in the concept of justification by faith? And if I understand that, then I'm good to go. Um, well, no, God, God's got more, much, much more for you, you know, much, much more for you to cling to than just that. Yeah, that's really good. And I do think bringing assurance into it is is significant because the sacraments have to do with identity uh, because of their objectivity. As Paul has talked about, they're very helpful when it comes to assurance. Uh, but we have to lean on the sacraments in faith and not in a presumptuous way. I mean, that, that, you know, that goes back to some of the things we talked about of how the objective does not guarantee final salvation apart from a response of faith. So, yeah, so it, it is interesting to me how Luther and Calvin, I think, in a very helpful pastoral way, pointed to the sacraments uh, as as ways in which we can draw, you know, means from which we can draw assurance of, of our salvation and our standing before God because of their objectivity, because they don't depend on, say, feelings in the moment or something like that, while still insisting on the, you know, the reality of faith and, and, and all that goes with that. Right. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's just like, I used the analogy of a husband and wife a minute ago. You can use the, the analogy of a father and his children. Every father wants yeah. his, every good father at least, wants his children to know. He wants his children to know that they are loved. And so he speaks words of love to them, but he also gives them hugs and he gives them gifts. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father wants us to know that he loves us. And so he speaks words of yeah. love to us in preaching. But he also gives us hugs and kisses and baptism in the Lord's Supper so that we will know. He gives us these other gifts to assure us. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, the whole the whole function of uh, of the sacraments in relation to assurance is really another, it's a, it's another question that kind of flows out of the efficacy discussion. But it's another really important question. Amen. Yeah, I was just. Well, uh, gentlemen. Oh, go, go ahead, Paul. Why don't you have the last word, sir? Go, go ahead. We've, we've, uh, we, and we might have to do a version to, or an epi, uh, a follow up conversation. This has been so fun um, and uh, and helpful. But yeah, w would you would you take us out, uh, Pastor Paul, with with some final thoughts? Yeah, I, I was just going to say how precious uh, it is uh, when you think about what God does for His people through um, His work of salvation, including giving us the promises of His Word. And then, um, you know, stamping those promises upon us and then bringing us in. You mentioned adoption. Um, yeah, I think of Galatians 4, where it talks about because we are sons, God has given us the spirit of his son. Um, he's adopted us into his family and into his household. And what that comes with is the, the washing of his love 
and it also comes yep. with him bringing us to his table so that we can feast with him, we can commune with him. So I, I think you're right. These are great analogies. You can use uh, the husband-wife analogy, which I think is probably better than the doctor-patient analogy, um, <laughs> and then also just the father-children analogy because these fit so well with the biblical um, uh, data, yeah. you see, the way like, that God presents yeah. it to us in his word. And so and so I, I, I appreciate this conversation. This this conversation is is helpful to me. It can go in many different directions, and I think there's so much more to be said. But I do appreciate you guys having me on. Glad, glad yeah. Paul. Great thoughts. You've written a great paper. Very helpful stuff. Yeah, agreed. And 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 pastoral. I think I think this is uh, this is about leading people towards better understanding, uh, clear understanding versus uh, trying to to add you know uh, more esoteric, you know, arguments to, uh, to an already confusing discussion. So I would, I would encourage you, if you're listening to this episode, go check out, uh, pastor Paul Liberati's, um, uh, blog, partly Presbyterian, his article, what does baptism accomplish? Uh, we'll put a link in the description and, uh, and, and I think it lives up. It kind of meets the smell test of, of our tagline for this, this podcast, uh, theology for normal people. So we, we really are trying to to meet people where they are and 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 give people um, um, tools, theological tools that they can they can apply and use in their day to day life. So, thank you, sir, for joining us. You've been listening to uh, the Got a Minute podcast with uh, with uh, Rich Pastor Rich Lusk, our our guest Paul Liberati, and uh, and, and uh, of of uh, Sacramento's uh, Christ uh, Church of the King. Sorry, Church of the King Church in Sacramento, California. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>